Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, welcome uh, to this uh, seminar. I'm Nick Pierce. I'm the director of the Institute for Policy Research, hosting you uh, today. And I'm delighted to be able to welcome uh, Claire Craig to join us to speak to you today about science and how government listens to scientists. So actually, it starts with how does government listen to scientists? Um, Claire um, has had a very distinguished career um, in science policy. She was the head of the um, government office for science uh, on behalf of the chief scientific uh, advisor, the government's chief scientific advisor. It's a very important part of the Whitehall machinery, uh, the government office for science, and a, and a critical part of the infrastructure for bringing scientific knowledge to bear on policy making. Um, and she's now the director of science policy at the Royal Society, um, who obviously play a critical role in working with government uh, and the scientific community in bringing uh, scientific evidence to bear on public policy. So she's really well placed to talk to us today. And I know there's a lot of interest from across the university uh, in these kinds of questions. Um, you could be forgiven for thinking that nothing much is happening in British government at the moment <laughs> apart from that unmentionable thing. Uh, but there is still a lot of work going on uh, in all the departments, the ministries, uh, uh, doing their day jobs um, and using science in different ways to do that work. And we're going to hear today from Claire about how this really works and some of the issues and challenges that scientists but also policy officials, civil servants and others face when they're addressing these kinds of questions. So Claire, it's, it's delightful to have you here. Uh, I'll hand over to you now. Claire. Thank you. Thank you very much and um, thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about my um, favourite subject. <laughs> And um, what I'm going to talk about um, draws on the experience that Nick has described. So um, a lot of it uh, comes back to um, the moments when chief scientific advisors or other senior scientists are talking directly to people, generally in national government, because that's where most of my experience is, uh, the kind of Nobel laureate meets a minister moment. Um, but actually, in thinking about that, um, you can, I think, pull out all sorts of issues that are much more general to conversations, individual and collective, when somebody who cares a lot about policy um, and public matters but doesn't know very much about science is speaking to somebody who believes that they have some important evidence that's relevant to that but maybe doesn't understand um, the politics. So those are kind of more general matters. And my um, premise, uh, and the, the, the premise in the, the book which gives this, uh, gives this title, um, is twofold. One is that, in fact, um, science advice is still often a kind of quite an amateur um, function uh, when there is nevertheless a lot of learning from a lot of disciplines and indeed from practice that could and should more rapidly be brought to bear. In other words, you don't have to start from scratch each time a chief scientific advisor gets appointed to a new government department uh, or somebody heads up a, a review or working group. So there is a lot of learning and reflection there and I want to kind of make sure that gets spread faster, um, including uh, places uh, like this one. Um, and the other is um, that it's a kind of dizzying combination of uh, high concept and detailed craft skill. In other words, if you are at a moment when uh, a minister meets a top scientist, then what appears to be at stake is kind of high matters of uh, the validity of whatever the discipline might be of physics or chemistry or uh, some detailed natural sciences and complex systems on the one hand um, and uh, on the other uh, matters of state um, and uh, potentially uh, lives and welfare and national security at stake. Of course, what's also going on is um, what's the temperature? What time of day is it? 
um, uh, kind of what's the layout, uh, who else is in the room, those kind of details. And quite often one of the interesting things about working on conversations, and again it doesn't have to be in Whitehall, it can be anywhere else, is the kind of craft skill of the curation of the conversation. Because the facts, by and large, don't speak for themselves, it's, it's who is speaking for them and how and when and who, what's creating the listening environment, kind of curating the conversation, if you like. Anyhow, um, so um, that's, a, that's a quite a lot of preamble. Um, and um, a pretty good starting point um, for um, kind of surfacing some of the, uh, the kind of challenges is this one. It's a statement um, uh, that in, I first heard from, from Adair Turner, who was, amongst other things, chair of the Climate Change Committee and ran the, uh, the big review on, uh, that led to the raising of the pension age and various other things, so knows quite a lot about evidence in government. The point here is this. If a statement is true, uh, perfectly true, um, then, uh, by and large, it's tautological um, or it's so bounded and qualified, it's so carefully expressed in single disciplinary terms, it's so specific that it is unlikely to be useful um, to um, a kind of wider policy audience. Um, on the other hand, I think this statement is probably not perfectly true. Just think about it for a moment. Anyhow, um, so, um, right, I'm going to jump in now. So, um, uh, there's a, a scholar of science in, in policy called uh, Roger Pilker, based in the States, and he uh, talks about uh, tornado and abortion politics. And I'm going to just give you a classic tornado moment. So this is the... Uh, uh, put, cast your minds back to when um, uh, the Fukushima uh, in, civil emergency happened after the great Japanese earthquake. Um, in uh, the UK national government, what was going on was that the Prime Minister called the COBRA Committee, which is called in civil emergencies. That has a standing arrangement alongside of it called SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group in Emergencies, which is led by the Government Chief Scientific Advisor, who in this case was John Beddington. And the question that the Prime Minister in COBRA was asking the SAGE was, uh, is it more safe for British citizens to stay in Tokyo uh, or to go? So it was a very, uh, in Pilka terms, it was a tornado question. Um, the, the, there was evidence that needed to be applied to the question. It was by and large not a values-based question. He would contrast this with, say, matters of abortion, where probably, by and large, there isn't so much scientific or technical uh, issues at stake, but there are very strong value-based ones. So this is a classic of tornado politics. And uh, what John did, um, remember that if you cast your mind back, this is a highly uncertain moment. So it's questions of what was actually going on uh, in uh, Fukushima. Fukushima uh, nuclear plants, um, what was the weather going to be like, what directions were the winds going to blow, um, what was likely to happen given very low levels of radiation that might or might not end up in uh, affecting civilians in Tokyo, and then actually, uh, and this is a kind of a real world example, what are the dangers of the other or the risks of the other courses of action, because you get exposure to radioactivity if you take a long haul jet flight, um, so uh, there are risks uh, either way. Anyhow, so John had to do that over a period of um, hours and and, and or three days in the end um, and give advice to the Prime Minister which was basically uh, the risks of going are likely to be the risks of uh, greater than the risks of staying uh, and uh, that was the advice that the Prime Minister followed. Some other governments took different views based off what presumably was could have been the same evidence. So there's another big learning there which comes up time and time again which is you give the evidence but actually uh, there's a politi political judgment on, on top of it. And um, this pattern of advice giving uh, in emergencies it exemplifies a whole heap of other things that are really relevant to what's going on at other longer term issues, particularly um, the bringing together of different forms of evidence. So um, there is no, I would think, uh, safe to say, there's no big public policy question 
to which one discipline has the answer. And quite a lot of the skill, both in providing advice and being people working on the interface, like chief scientific advisors, is how you um, bring together the right kinds of disciplines and how you create the conversations or frame the issues such that they can all um, contribute. And then you give something that is nevertheless meaningful, given that scientists, of course, are all deeply suspicious because they have different framings and different languages. And as soon as you start speaking outside of your field, um, you may find that you are um, at risk of losing credibility with your uh, hinterland. Um, so an extreme form of this actually was under Ebola when uh, a similar structure was created. The scientific advisory group gave advice and there, just in the beginning, they did not go far enough to include uh, humanities scholars and in particular, um, as a result of advice given early, it was became very clear that the advice on tackling the, the most recent Ebola outbreak wouldn't be effective unless uh, historians and anthropologists who specialise in the various regions were brought in to provide advice on, on uh, indigenous practices. So the, uh, the, kind of the, the cross-disciplinary element can go um, really wide and it's certainly not about physical uh, sciences only. Um, at the Royal Society uh, with the Academy of Medical Sciences, we, we try to go further. The thing about... Um, providing um, uh, synthesized advice across disciplines is that by and large uh, nobody pays you for it and um, it isn't necessarily the fastest way to a kind of um, uh, high academic status publication. Um, it's often quite hard to get published. Um, so there's a, a failure, there's a lack of incentives and rewards in the system for providing um, this kind of synthesised um, evidence. So um, at the academies we, um, we, we put together a report really trying to make it easier to do the right thing by saying despite the lack of incentives there nevertheless are quite a lot of models and different ways of doing it from the very long scale. The gold standard would be the IPCC providing advice right across a whole range of disciplines on a very routine basis to political decision makers. Um, with the, the, the SAGE, the uh, example I was just giving of, of advice and civil emergencies being the kind of other end of the spectrum, doing it really, really quickly, just with the knowledge that's in people's heads and kind of imparted verbally. But there's a lot of ranges of, of mechanisms in between. So it does happen, um, but actually our premise was it's not sufficiently rewarded. Um, so... Pilka and others uh, also talk a lot about framing and one of the other really big challenges um, in uh, acting at the interface between science and government is that if you think about it there's really little reason for the knowledge that's coming out of the science space which will have been developed by um, decades or centuries of people within a discipline um, pursuing questions that they believe to be really exciting um, but are tractable within the terms of the discipline. There's no real reason why that should actually ever align with the public policy question of the moment, um, where uh, what appears to be the given framing is the result of uh, stakeholder groups, of the history of the way you've arrived at it, uh, and a whole uh, range of other things. And um, into this mismatch, this kind of structural mismatch, um, walks uh, factors like uh, the tendency of the framing of debates to be um, around, um, I've called them uh, charismatic entities. So um, to tread into immediately into kind of controversial ground, one of the things, if you look at the history of, of bovine TB and badger culling, is in a sense a mismatch between um, a framing that often focused on a very charismatic entity, uh, to, wit, to wit the badger, 
um, and uh, a set of stakeholders and issues around that when the longer-term solutions to bovine TB come out of uh, rather less charismatic discussions about systems, about biosecurity, about business models, about managing domestic and agricultural animal populations in harmony, etc., etc. And you can see the minister's eyes glaze over almost, um, or, or, or the journalists do, when on the one hand you've got a, a scientific framing, if you like, uh, and on the other a, a kind of rather more compelling narrative. Um, and, uh, and these, but this isn't always bad because, of course, a compelling narrative is what you need to get people to focus on an issue. So the right narrative draws attention, um, frames, directs, um, and helps people to, me to remember things. Um, but the message to scientists, who often think that these things don't matter, is to think really hard about how their, um, as it were, more academic advice may be contextualised. So... Um, Mark Walport, who was Government Chief Scientific Advisor before he moved to uh, head up the UK uh, re Research and Innovation Body, um, being a, a former medic, used to talk about lenses. So uh, the way he uh, would uh, often uh, talk with other scientists was to talk about the different lenses of a problem. And this is helpful because um, quite often you find that either the advisor or the politician is thinking more about one than the other and not acknowledging the, different, the, the, the range of different possibilities. So the example of fracking um, has a very specific um, moment. When the first stories about, um, in quotes, uh, earthquakes in Blackpool um, came up some years ago, uh, then the then government chief scientific advisor asked the Royal Academy of Engineering and the Royal Society to do a short report on the risks from fracking. And there was immediately a bit of a discussion because what the scientists really wanted to do um, was answer in quotes, kind of the right question, the big question, which was what does this mean for uh, carbon budgets, uh, carbon footprints, carbon overall impact uh, for energy markets and, and, and so on. Um, what the government needed at that point and wanted at that point was a much narrower question, which was about the physical and environmental risks directly from fracking. And for scientists, sometimes there's, there's a choice, which is do you do you, do you um, work on a question which is likely to have a, an immediate impact and relevance, or do you, as it were, say to the government, well, you may be interested in that question, but I'm, let me tell you, you know, the question you really need to worry about is this one, and in a couple of years' time, I'll come back with you on some, with some more information about that. And by and large, a long-term tactic is to try and do a bit of both. And one of the things you see with really effective scientific advisors is that they're there when ministers want them and need them, like at Fukushima, and that buys a kind of license to be part of the conversation on things that are much longer term or where the minister doesn't necessarily want to hear what needs to be done, um, but you've built the trust and the relationship to, to, to bring it back. So sticking with controversy for a moment, um, the, um, there was a really, uh, to those of us who care about how science advice gets given and received, there was actually a really interesting sequence of events around these, these two drugs. On ecstasy, for those who may remember, there was a moment when the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs um, uh, was asked to look at ecstasy, and um, it came back with a view that the harms from ecstasy were such that it wasn't great, they were not sufficient to uh, classify it at the higher level of, of drug classification with all of the regulation and, and controls that come around with that. 
the government of the day said, uh, thank you very much for that advice, we're going to classify it nonetheless. Um, there was a various sequence of events, but Professor David Nutt in particular uh, left the Advisory Council and her, then and subsequently has been very vociferous. And a lot of scientists at that time saw this as an example of the kind of worst case of, you know, venal, short-term, stupid ministers not able to listen to advice, uh, scientists uh, giving the advice and being completely ignored. Um, and uh, that undoubtedly uh, does happen. Um, however, what that moment led to was a set of uh, discussions and then actually guidance, which you can see on the web and, and is widely available, about what's going on here. Um, and in shorthand, it says, um, for those scientists who are working closely with government um, and, and to ministers, sort of two things, and it's basically mutual respect. Scientists have a duty to give the best possible evidence that they can and to do that without fear or favour um, and I've never met a scientist who wasn't committed to doing that when working with government um, and uh, ministers absolutely must listen um, and should uh, uh, but ministers are subject to a much wider range of pressures they're democratically accountable if they choose to do something which does not appear to be in line with whatever the evidence was that the scientist has given they should actually explain why they do that um, but then the scientist should accept that so a counterexample to what happened with ecstasy was what happened with cat k-h-a-t um, uh, where the advisory council essentially said the same thing this is not a highly uh, harmful drug uh, and the Home Secretary of the day met the Chair of the Council. Um, it was absolutely clear to him that she had understood what the basis was of this evidence that they were giving. She then went off, she made the same decision as had previously happened, and sent a letter, which is publicly available, saying why she'd done that, which includes issues like the fact that classifying CAT uh, in the way that she did uh, made it easier operationally for the police to operate internationally because it was in align with uh, other um, countries. Now, you can still take a view as to whether that was the right thing to do or not, but from the point of view of those who care about whether the evidence was there and whether it was clearly listened to in the sense of known, um, then that was a better example of that kind of um, relationship. So um, I talked about the craft skill, um, and um, there are some kind of points of specificity that, um, again, sort of scientists with the, you know, the knowledge they want to impart and ministers in the heat of the moment um, don't always pay um, careful attention to. Um, uh, uh, numbers and images and words. So um, on, um, on numbers, um, this is another area where there's a lot of lot of knowledge now, a lot of it actually coming out of either public health or climate change um, debates where we've got kind of, you know, 40 years of reflection that we can have experience to look back on about what and how numbers do and don't work. Quite a lot of that also comes out of risk. So this is an example, just partly because I think it's another good example of how governments do actually seek out science advice and listen to it. Um, this is um, an example of what's now quite a routine thing, which is the National Risk, risk Register. That is run by Cabinet Office. There's a, uh, there's a version like this, which is natural hazards and accidents. There's another which is about kind of terrorism and all those uh, nasty things. But what this does is routinely go out and say, what's the best evidence about a number of major risks that face the government? What can we say about their impact and their likelihood? And then it's used to inform planning um, and uh, planning uh, and, and contingency measures. And that's now a kind of routine, routinized part. Um, in those kinds of discussion, 
questions about um, what it means to have these numbers. You've got the relative likelihoods down there, you know, what it means to have a political discussion about whether a particular event is likely to happen on a, a timescale between 1 in 20 and 1 in 2. The numbers, the, the, the numbers and, and their significance um, can... Um, can, uh, th 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 there's, there's learning that you can bring to them which shows things like, for example, um, coming from climate change, under certain circumstances, if you give a, a range of numbers, if you say it's between two and four, um, then the person you're uh, speaking to is likely to have greater confidence than if you say it's probably three or it's three with an error bar or whatever. But, you know, there's some actual quite good um, uh, um, uh, observational um, and experimental psychology, for example, or behavioural sciences. Um, and um, David Spiegelhalter, who runs the new Public, uh, the Centre for the Public Understanding of Risk in Cambridge has done a lot of this sort of work. So you don't have to be a you don't have to be a, um, an amateur, if you like, in using numbers uh, in, in conversations. Um, and uh, there's some examples on the uh, the right of, of, of this one from a report that the Government Office for Science did. Um, the thing that uh, the thing that a lot of physical scientists in particular find um, incredibly difficult is is this business about um, whether um, more uh, information, uh, more data, more numbers uh, cause people to change their minds, um, uh, which, uh, it, uh, generate, which in many cases it does not. Um, and I haven't got the graphic here, but there's a lovely um, triangle, uh, people may know it, triangular kind of graphic, I think it's from Chris DeMeyer, which basically says if you take two people here, one of whom marginally believes in climate change and one of whom anthropogenic, one of whom marginally doesn't think the evidence is sufficient, um, then over time what happens is they notice different things, they associate with different people, they ask different questions, and what happens as they learn more is that they get further and further apart in their views and more entrenched. So as it were, more uh, information doesn't bring them together, it actually um, uh, in, entrenches views. And that's really, really difficult for a, a lot of uh, scientists and more other academics to get, uh, to get to grips with. This slide is intentionally blank um, because um, I just wanted to, 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 to talk about images, which is another thing that a lot of physical scientists don't, don't quite get. Um, so uh, if I were to ask you to visualise, uh, in the context of climate change, say, um, a polar bear on a fragmentary ice flow, um, or a turtle wrapped in plastic, you probably could, yeah? Um, so a powerful image that signifies um, and draws attention to a particular big suite of, of complex issues can be really, really important in terms of, um, uh, as I say, kind of drawing attention and often um, also uh, creating an environment in which there isn't just, hey, there's an issue, but also, hey, there's an issue that matters and this is why. And that can be, uh, in some instances, very powerful and in others um, it can flow, it can kind of operate against um, the, the kind of centre of gravity or the direction of the evidence, but whatever it is, it's important to know that it matters. Um, the same with words. So this really came home to a lot of physical scientists with the climate gate uh, issues and the emails that, 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 that came out there. Um, and there's a lovely website um, with some examples if you want, I mean, sort of 20 or 30. But basically, uh, in, um, in uh, a laboratory setting or amongst the disciplinary colleagues, to say something is theoretical may actually mean um, it's stronger than something that's evidence-based. In other words, it's a, it's a theory, um, uh, I don't know, theory of, of of, of gravity or of, uh, of relativity, you know, it's a, a, a theoretical may be a powerful statement, but to say something theoretical in, in uh, public speak obviously implies, well, I think it obviously, generally implies it's theoretical, you know, why would you listen to that? 
Um, uh, bias has many technical meanings, um, but when it's used in general conversation, almost always is heard as prejudiced. Um, and uh, manipulation, which is one of the words that I think was in a climate gate email, to manipulate data uh, to one scientist talking to another is just a kind of, you know, it's a technical term, but to, mani to manipulate data more generally, well, you can, you can see where it's going. Right, um, so um, I wanted to come on to thinking about the future, uh, because uh, when you kind of unpick quite a lot of the um, uh, uncertainties and the anxieties about kind of what's going on when scientists are talking in uh, policy settings um, is about how you translate what ultimately is always observational evidence about the past into decisions which are always concerned about the future. Um, there is within that even a kind of, um, I think it's the white queen in Alice, um, Alice Mondelet, who calls out, shrieks out in pain uh, when Alice says why. She says, well, I'm going to be scratched tomorrow, um, so I'm feeling the pain now. There's a sense in which a decision being taken now is being taken with all of the pain of what might happen as a result of that decision in the future. Yeah? Um, uh, so uh, you're there in a room, a decision's going to be taken, the pain is now, the, the outcomes are in the future um, and may indeed never be known because they're about counterfactuals which won't happen and the evidence is always in the past. It's jolly tricky when you start unpicking. It's amazing decisions get made as, as frequently as they do. Um, so where do you go? Well, one place um, is models, and um, the, um, that is really disconcerting. Um, the um, the uh, models, models um, in a wide-ranging uh, wide term, really is, 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 is quite a good kind of um, overarching concept. So here are some examples. Uh, the model of um, uh, an architectural model of, of St. Paul's before it was built. Um, uh, a novel, Persuasion, as an example of modelling social and personal and familial relationships. Um, an amazing thing that's in the Science Museum, which uses water to model um, financial systems and the economy. And then the kind of more uh, commonplace quantitative models, a model of a city uh, uh, involving uh, lots of, of, of data and modeling used to design uh, cars. So modeling in all sorts of ways. But what they're trying to do is abstract, abstract principles from the past, from observational data, or in, uh, including personal uh, experience and say things about the world in ways that can be used to explain what's going on and in some ways to predict usually multiple possible futures in order to um, have a hold on them and to begin to make decisions. Another of the really good things that the UK government has done um, in terms of science in government is uh, for um, more than 20 years it's had a programme called Foresight which uh, looks, um, as it says in the name, it looks longer term uh, in order to inform near-term decisions and since the turn of the century, um, it's been, um, uh, it's been a, a scheme that's run on a small number of really big projects, um, looking 10 to 100 years um, ahead. This one's quite old, but that means there's, there's, there's some history to it. So Dave King, who was Government Chief Scientific Advisor then, um, uh, set up a project on flooding. This involved historic data on flood risk in houses in England and Wales that was available for several decades going back that was put into a quantitative model that, believe it or not, this is really heroic, that then was, was nested with the Hadley Centre's models of global climate change and 
was then forecast, put, sort of stepped forward under different scenarios to 2080. So this is heroic modelling, okay? Um, uh, uh, starting back from these really granular data on 10 kilometre grid squares about, about flood risk right the way through to the future. So, um, so that, that, that actually, that, at the time, um, that was uh, extremely powerful. It was used by Treasury and DEFRA to justify some significant increases in flood risk management. It basically says that under any plausible um, set of arrangements, you are going to have uh, increased flood risk. Um, so it was used to, uh, to justify spe spending decisions then. Um, it was also used um, elsewhere, um, and the, the kind of modelling then, another nice thing about models is that you can, you can spread them, you can reuse them and adapt them for different situations. So um, it was used elsewhere. Um, and it was part of the evidence base that led to the UK taking this amazing statutory deci uh, political decision to introduce statutory carbon budgets, which is really quite a significant thing when you think about uh, uh, the range of responses in different countries. This also shows about images, though, because Dave will talk about um, putting this on the table in Cabinet. Um, and um, basically, it's irresistible. But if you're a normal human being, when you see this, and if you own a house, if you're fortunate enough to own a house, you just go, like, which square is my house in? Yeah? Um, and what's its colour? And if you're, but, if you, but if you show it to a politician, they go, where's my constituency? <laughs> yeah? um, so it was, just, it was another nice example of the power of a graphic. Um, at the right moment. Uh, what we also did with that, um, and this is, this is kind of increasingly important um, as computational power goes up and, and, and software improves, is you can use models um, in more kind of participative and engaging ways. You can hand the power over. So if you're a scientist, you don't have to come in and say, uh, you know, in my judgment, uh, the most plausible scenario for flood risk is X and here's Y, and let me explain it to you in great detail. Um, you can let people play. So this, um, which is now, you know, way old, software but this was based on the same uh, modeling that you saw with the other um, the other um, graphics um, but actually it was just a little kind of sim city type thing where you'd, you'd be in charge you put somebody in charge of an area um, uh, they'd have decisions to make in investment in flood uh, defenses in economics in um, in uh, healthcare they'd have to kind of run it like a, a public authority and then some climate would happen to them it'd step forward 10 years and another 10 years and some you, the climate would throw things and they'd get kind of voted in or out you tried to stay in power for a century and it doing that doing that um, uh, really um, it helps with a, a, a large number of things one is it, it shows for example some basics of political decision making but which is hard to explain to people often um, which is that the same choices would lead to different outcomes because you couldn't determine what the climate was going to do. And actually, that's quite helpful if you're in, locked in a political discussion now because it stops people trying to get the one true answer. Um, and you can say that, but actually, if you get people to feel it, then you're, uh, you're kind of changing the political discussion in a way that's really helpful. The other is that um, if you play, a model, play with a model a lot, you get an intuitive feeling for a complex system without having to ever know that's actually what you're doing. Because if you try to talk to a minister about a complex system, um, then you might have to show them this, um, and, um, and um, it's probably downhill from there unless you've got a really nerdy one. Um, I think that's fair, yeah? Um, so, uh, so we did a, a foresight project um, on, on obesity, and this was a lovely systems map, very elegant. Um, in fact, um, uh, through the project, we, we, we then kind of um, clustered it and, and into kind of rather more tractable um, subsystems, um, and, and that's usually the way to go to hide the wiring, almost literally to hide the wiring diagram. Um, 
the other thing about the, the, this was a project, I think it looked at 2040 or thereabouts. The other thing that was interesting about this project was that it was used by um, both a Labour government and then a Conservative government um, as um, an evidential basis for what were in some parts similar, but in some parts quite different policy decisions. So part of the learning here for scientists actually is about, uh, it's twofold. One is we separated out the evidence base from the more speculative stuff, and that meant the evidence base had a longer had a longer shelf life um, the other was it's just very interesting to observe that you can use you can plausibly use the same sets of evidence to have very different views on the role of the state in what you should do about them and you can see that in the basis of these two quite different strategies that nevertheless have as their underpinning um, one source of evidence um, uh, the biggest thing that this project did which is qualitative really was it was it was impossible to look at that diagram for um, I don't know um, uh, DWP to look at it and say um, actually we uh, it's just the Department of Health's problem or for the Department of Health to say well actually if you know DEFRA could sort out the food companies it would all be okay or whatever it might be it just really brought home that it it was bigger than any one um, uh, department um, so I'm still going on to the, to, the, to the future and thinking about the future. Um, Nesta did a quite a good, uh, uh, the, the National Endowment for Science, Technology and the Arts, did a, a short report called Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow, um, which was about different sorts of futures work. And it distinguished, um, slightly artificially but usefully, between uh, forecasting, the kind of big computational, uh, relatively near-term, system-well-defined uh, models, foresight, which is a kind of structured thinking about the future, that was the examples that I was showing, although it's a more generic term, um, and fiction being the kind of um, uh, usually sort of inspirational, uh, often either utopic or dystopic uh, statements that also are part of the discussions that go on about the about the future. Um, an example of the um, uh, the latter at the moment, they abound in AI um, and, and discussions about AI and AI in the future of work, AI in the future of humanity. Um, to hear uh, Demis Hassabis of Google DeepMinds talk about solving for intelligence and then using that to solve for everything else. That's an amazing future statement, um, and it's clearly a statement uh, for him of aspiration. Um, anyhow, uh, so we, um, we did a, a foresight project on the future of cities, which included looking back at how people had looked at the future of cities during the course of the 20th century. Um, and uh, this was just a, a particular example I liked because uh, in this magazine uh, from 1961, you've got four um, particular um, thoughts about futures of cities. And two are still about as far away as they ever were, colonies in space and a kind of Harry Potter type, um, uh, whatever it's called, Quidditch um, uh, sports, yeah? Or Ender's Game. And two are pretty normal. Yeah, um, and in 1961, they probably, at least superficially, looked roughly the same. So the problem with thinking about the future is it's very difficult when you're in 1961 to tell which of those are actually going to be um, uh, normalised by 2019 and which aren't. However, um, we're beginning to get more insights and more ways of thinking about uh, thinking about the future, um, and they're coming from all sorts of different areas. There's a really interesting work by Lawrence Friedman on the future of war, for example, that bears on this. And in this piece of work, because architects are one of the few areas where there's been consistent, significant investment in thinking about 
the future, um, usually of cities, sometimes of buildings, in ways that accommodate both the real stuff that has to be built and the highly imaginary. So you've got um, quite a lot of very speculative architectural thinking about the future alongside of things which have actually influenced what's happened, like garden cities. So garden cities have a heritage that starts at the turn of the, uh, sort of the 1902, so the turn of the century there. And you can see that mapping in English cities thinking with real hardcore decisions, um, whereas some other things uh, much less so, but only in the UK, um, in the US and France, you don't see the same things. Anyhow, um, you can see I'm getting on now to a subject where most of what I've said so far, I, I would say there's a lot of established knowledge, and those who are interested can draw on that, uh, these issues about science communication, about modelling, um, and, and so on. Um, the, the kind of more, um, more kind of speculative areas where I think there's a lot more to do in terms of research broadly come under the headings of narrative and, and policy. So um, one of the narratives that was going around, st sticking with the theme of flooding for a moment and staying quite local, um, during the Somerset Levels flooding, um, you may remember um, quite a strong uh, narrative in the public engagement and the public discussions was around whether the Environment Agency had um, dredged and whether it, certain rivers and whether it should have dredged them and whether dredging would help at the time. So um, uh, at the centre of government at the time we were doing various things, we were pulling in, this was a back in the Cobra, Sage type uh, situation, we were pulling in expertise from the Dutch, from the US, we were basically saying look there's a very large flat surface here with a lot of water on it, kind of what can we do to get this water off? Um, but, um, so um, looking at things like the, I can't remember what they're called, but the, um, the pumps that go um, uh, Archimedes screws. Anyhow, yeah. you, you get through. There, there, were, there were practical things that were being looked at, but the, but 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 that technical advice was also against this narrative of um, very strongly felt have felt narrative of this wouldn't have happened if our local knowledge had been listened to um, and if the environment agency had responded differently. Now that again, that that kind of matters. Some some scientists would say, I mean. Rightly, and, and there's, there's a view, there's a place for sort of all of these views. Some scientists would basically say, you know, the best thing I can do is simply give the evidence on the basis of what I can speak about. And it's called in Pilker's uh, uh, framework, um, kind of being a, a science arbiter. I, I will stick to that. Some try and um, do what's called being an honest broker, uh, give advice, scientific advice that increases the number of possibilities that may be uh, considered um, under the. Um, uh, under the, in, in the policy space, um, and some become science advocates, which basically means going further towards saying, I have some knowledge here. You take Dave King in the uh, sort of the turn of the century as a, uh, as a physical scientist um, uh, with knowledge about what climate modelling was showing, basically saying, you know, I'm not just going to tell you um, that this is important, I'm going to tell you this is so important, you must act. And that's going a step further, if you like. Anyhow. Um, uh, so on um, narrative, um, this is so very speculative and I'm coming towards the end, uh, but I just think it's so interesting and we're on the cusp of being able to, to kind of think about this and reflect on it and study it much better. Um, what you've got here is, a, is just a correlation, right? Um, the, the bars show um, a, a, a piece of work, not yet, not yet I think published, um, in which um, a chap got at you, the, you can looked at the um, uh, English language transcripts of all of the mainstream films uh, uh, for the last 10 years. Um, they exist because of um, uh, needing to, to, to have them for the hard of hearing. And set loose a machine learning system that basically pattern, pattern spotted on these uh, transcripts. 
looking, we were, it was part of a study that, that we were involved in looking at AI and how people talk about AI. And what this basically shows is that um, there are clusters of concerns in these films, in the dialogue and in the plot, which um, associate control with AI. So in other words, the, the films are about, is the AI controlling the humans? Who's in control of the AI? Whatever. Um, and more so, this is highly qualitative, but you get my drift, more so with AI than with some other things that you might have put in the same bracket as in a kind of plot driver that is a bit techie, that is a jolly scary. Um, so, so you've got something going on there. Um, at the same time, um, we at the Royal Society were doing the first um, very sober, very careful public dialogue on AI. So this was now two years ago. Um, we had people of mixed socioeconomic background, mixed educational background, two days, um, equal footing with the scientists who were there, um, you know, able to explore issues as they wished. But the, this issue of control was coming up in this highly non-fictional setting um, in ways that actually suggested this was also something really important that then we were putting alongside of the, um, the scientific advice about what these um, systems are likely to actually be able to do and why that matters. And that in turn has led to a number of policy outcomes like the introduction of the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, which was um, an announcement by the government about a year ago. Uh, but it was a correlation, and this, this sorry, I should say, it was a correlation, and this sense of could we in any way um, understand better how, um, uh, in particular, how uh, uh, non-narrative evidence in all of the the forms I've been showing it, narratives which cross over from fictional and non-fictional, because a model is a fiction, by the way, if you think about it, a model is always fictional, um, uh, and, 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 and and fiction, and could you use that? However, right. Um, so this is my <coughs> final slide. Um, there is a piece of work for the. the Institute for Government, which was um, set up with money by Lord Sainsbury and does a lot of really good work on thinking about how government operates and uh, really trying to, um, to advise and improve it. They did, did a piece of work based um, on a qualitative approach to six case studies. But these were areas where um, policy had changed in a way that was significant that you might not have anticipated would have been possible at the start. So the introduction of the ban on smoking in public places, a national minimum wage, the statutory carbon budgets, uh, unleaded petrol, seatbelts, and something else that I can't remember. Um, and uh, looked, um, and it's only qualitative, but looked in quite a fine-grained way through interviews with people involved at what the conditions for that success, success meaning policy that followed the accumulating evidence, was. Um, and you've got the list there. The thing that I just wanted to, to, to really finish with was this point about um, leadership and relationships. Um, and this wasn't about a particular um, elite conversation, although that... Um, that is off sometimes a moment where you can see something change, but actually around that is a set of relationships and persistence across individuals in, um, in governments, in science, um, in academia, in business, in NGOs, people who are persistent on the issue and quite often either work very closely across those boundaries or move between them over time. Um, and that appeared to be one of the um, conditions for success of that kind of really fundamental shift. Um, and um, I find that really quite... Um, um, well, it's useful to know that it takes a bit of time, although sometimes, because sometimes it's, you, you can get frustrated. You know, you've got this evidence and you, you feel it should be listened to and it's not being listened to quickly enough. It takes time, but also quite hopeful because it's really saying people who are persistent and caring about particular types of evidence or shift can make a difference. Um, and, and then my final slide is some suggestions of what, depending on what stage of your career, if you are an academic, you, you might want to do. Um, those are some suggestions. And I'm really sorry. It's my first book, so I have to put a picture <laughs> up. <laughs> Thank you.